Give and Take. It's a podcast where yours truly, Scott Jones, talks with artists, authors, theologians, political pundits, media people, and assorted others about the lens through which they experience life. My guest today is Jim Nabel. He's a playwright, singer-songwriter, novelist, and screenwriter hailing from the green and fertile Sacramento Valley, now living in Brooklyn, New York. His plays have been seen all over the country. His songs have been heard all over the world. He's the founder of the Pseudo-Symbolist Movement and instigator of the Soul Kebab and the lead singer and songwriter for the Randy Bandits. Some of you may also know him from his musical contributions to the podcast Unorthodox. He and I had a great conversation and he played some great music. I hope you enjoy it as much as I did. I give you Jim Nabel. Jim Nabel. Welcome to Give and Take. I, we've had, we actually did one other podcast together when I was doing The Mocking Cast, and we did a special podcast on Election Day. It's true. Of now, last year. now the world has changed. The world has changed. The world would have changed either way. Yeah, I think it's changed more. It's changed more. Yeah. It's changed more. It's changed in the most amazing ways. Fantastic. <laughs> Take two. <laughs> have you have you ever heard um I heard Alec Baldwin saying that Donald Trump he feels bad for him because he's the guy that's always looking for a more powerful rhetorical turn of phrase. He's like, My cabinet is the most amazing cabinet. They're so well, fantastic. He, d- he doesn't have enough words to actually use them effectively, right? Wouldn't you think though you'd get a thesaurus or somebody just to walk around with cue cards um, like, hey. Yeah, or just, you know, Go online, go on Twitter, ask for extra words, something. Uh, well, you know, I, maybe he's uh, experimenting with a new form of language where, you know, we, we reduce the number of words that we use, kind of anti-Shakespearean, like, trim it, cut it back, you know, be really conservative with words. Grunt, ug. Yeah. Primal. Yeah, well, it's, you know, it's big, it's bigger, it's great, it's amazing. Bigly. Yeah. So we were, I mean, we were sitting at a church in, in Manhattan in a sacristy. Now we're actually at the home studio, the bunker. Rarely do I ever have anybody record in here, except my yeah. friend Bill Bohr, who I feel honored. It's also sort of a place where you might take someone to, to kidnap them and stash them and ransom them. Absolutely. I mean, it's possible. Yeah. You know, well, but, there's still time. But I guess. you're not a, are you a high risk? I mean, no offense, but are you you're a not going to, no, yeah. you're not going to get much from me. I'm sorry. This is. But a good rehearsal. If you wanted to, you know, practice, you could have next time Justin Bieber or something, and really make some money. Doesn't your wife though? Like, doesn't she like work for the Thornton Wilder estate or something? That's true. Is there Wilder money? Uh, I don't. I'm not allowed to comment on that. All right. Yeah. Wow. It's in it somewhere in Switzerland. I, I like that. So I, it's yeah. interesting that you do this. That she does that because my. Buddy and I, Bill, do this podcast called New Persuasive Words, and it's from a yeah. Thornton Wilder quote. Yeah, which is a quote from, what was it, his writings outside of plays? I yeah, so, right? yeah, yeah. It's, it's the idea that it, it, New Persuasive Words, it, the, he says the revival in religion will be a rhetorical one. New Persuasive Words for defaced or degraded old ones. Which really circles back to Trump. <laughs> He's a master. He's 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 got the best words. Yeah. Well, <laughs> he actually said that. He, said he's he has he does have the right. He said he has the best words. All five of them. Yeah. Sort of like the ingredients in the Haagen-Dazs. Uh, what's the like pure Haagen-Dazs? Simplify. 
You know, it's so interesting too. Like, not that we have to talk a lot of politics, but it, it's just I was thinking it was the first podcast conversation we did. But mm-hmm. I was listening this morning. I think to to Howard Stern. Or no, I was listening to. I was watching the news uh, morning show, Joe Scarborough show, and they were saying that he was with the Panamanian president. And it's funny because I I watch a lot of the press conference stuff because I'm weird like that. Like I like the I like I watch the I usually watch live. I know when the press briefings are. I find it so entertaining. Mm-hmm. But when he's with foreign leaders, it's always the same speech. Romania is such a great country. We have such strong relationships and getting stronger. And it's, it's the same, like, insert country. Like, yeah. So he's like, Panama, we have such a great relationship. It's getting stronger. And we did a great job on that canal, didn't we? I wonder if it's been like that with his wives. Yeah, exactly. It's like, but he's like, didn't we do okay, great? I love you more than the last one. Didn't we do great with that canal? And the Panamanian president was like, yeah, 100 years ago. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Who's the current leader of? What were we talking about? Panama? Yeah. I don't know who the president... It was the president. It was okay. there. Uh, G- G- I forget what it was. I, I didn't listen. And this is why I shouldn't be president either, because I'm, I'm thinking like Noriega. No, that, that was... was a long time ago. Yeah. Well, Noriega was a while ago. Is he dead? I think so. Okay. I think so. Well, we're all learning something together. Exactly. Look at that. So, Jim, you are a playwright and a singer-songwriter, an educator, and yeah. an all-around interesting artist. You want to sing a song for us? Sure. All right. The machine is in the steeple. It is not all right. Giving power to the people. It is not all right. And the bluebird fell the eagle. It is not all right. Everything is not all right. When they say he will get better. It is not all right when you say you can write letters. It is not all right when your chains have turned to fetters. It is not all right. Everything is not all right. It's only rock and roll, but it is not all right. Going for an evening stroll. It is not all right. The police are on patrol. And it is not all right. Everything is not all right. You could sing along if you want to. <laughs> or not, whatever. Through the chants and all the candles, it is not all right. Taking all that I can handle, it is not all right. And the Visigoths and Vandals say it is not all right. Everything is not all right. Pledge allegiance to the nation, it is not all right. You can take a paid vacation, it is not all right. Tell the doctors and the patients, it is not all right. Everything is not all right. You tell Jesus and Muhammad, it is not all right. Tell Moses and the Brahmins, it is not all right. Hanging on to hell is comet, it is not all right. Everything is not all right. Tell the women and the men, it is not all right. One more time again, it is not all right. But this is not the end, it is not all right. Everything is not all right. Everything is not all right. Everything is not all right. Why isn't everything all right? Tell us what's wrong. Uh, 
I, I thought I just did that in the song. Yeah, right. I mean, it's, you know, what is everything's not all right. The Visigoths, the Vandals, everybody's got it. Well, right. I mean, that reaches back to the, you know, the barbarians and exactly. fewer and fewer words. Uh, you know, I think we're all kind of freaked out, whatever side of the spectrum we're on. Everyone seems to be freaking out about everything. Uh, it's really hot in a lot of places. There's a lot of denial of things that seem like they're real. Um, I mean, I listened to Bob Dylan's uh, Nobel acceptance speech the other day, and I'm a big Bob Dylan fan, but I questioned that too. You know, so I, I'm really kind of, I feel like everything is off kilter. What did you find troubling about Bob Dylan's acceptance speech? It was the Moby Dick section. I had a friend who, who uh, suggested he might have been just reading from the cliff notes really quickly, and but I wasn't, I wasn't sure. I like Moby Dick too, but... Uh, yeah, I think I, I felt like he felt it wasn't all right that he was awarded this prize and he had to justify it, which is uh, which is weird because I think I think he deserves it in a lot of ways for what he's done. But I felt like he was in painted into a corner where he had to say, "I, I really am literary, and this is why." Um, so I, I felt I felt not all right for him. Yeah, it is interesting. Like what's interesting, it seems to me. I've been thinking about this a lot lately in American life, like. Everybody feels like an exile, right? Everybody feels like, like if you're on the right, we've been taken over by socialists and things. Like that. You know, if you're on the left, it's it, we're in a right wing takeover. If you're a gun rights person, they're going to take away all our guns. If you're if you're a gun control person, the NRA runs. The, it, it it just seems like yeah, everybody. Well, and also if you're on the right, you have to deal with the guy who's representing your your wing, uh, and you know, a lot of people recognize that he's. Nuts. So that's that's got to be difficult. Yeah, yeah. So is that why? Is that sort of because this is a new song you wrote, right? Yeah. No, it's a song I wrote um, on the subway a few months ago, and uh, a friend of mine actually texted me that he, he had heard uh, you know the Beatles. It's all right. And then started thinking about all the, all the rock songs that say it's all right. Uh, there's, there's even a Jay Z song that's about it being all right. It is all right for Jay Z. It is. I mean, but it's you know, well, you're not tax bracket. It's a very you'll, you'll weather you'll weather the storm. <laughs> sure. I mean, it's a comforting comforting sentiment that everything's all right, but I, I think it's also important to acknowledge when everything is not all right. Um, if there's going to be any kind of fixing of it or shifting of it, or, or who knows? But yeah, I think we all just feel a little more nervous than usual. Do you think that's like more acute in New York? I mean, like I, like, I mean, I I think certainly. There's been a lot of protests in downtown Philadelphia, huh. and I think a lot of people probably feel it. But it seems like New York in particular, there's acute sort of anxiety around this. I mean, maybe it's because it is a pretty progressive place. and Yeah. Well, I think everybody— From, from Wednesday's Even, even before we were aware of being on heightened alert, New York is a place where people are in a heightened alert state of mind. That's just what New York is. You're always kind of like you have your, your guard a little bit up, but also you're— kind of more raw because you're being rubbed against uh, buildings and people and, and turnstiles and, you know, you're kind of always in this state of being aware of your surroundings. And, and you know, now there's since, well, 2001 or maybe before, there's a real reason to be. So there's that. And you just wrote a playwright called The Rising Class? Or, 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 or I wrote a play, yeah. Uh, yeah, a, a couple years ago. It's called The Rising Class. Um we just had a reading in New Jersey. Right. That's what I was saying. Keeping it in New Jersey. Yeah. In January, right? Yeah. 
it's a it's a play about class because I was thinking about class a lot. Um, without going too much into it, I work at a um, a private school during my my day life and think about class a lot. And there, you know, a lot of great students and teachers and other people I work with, but I'm more class aware in that way because I'm kind of going up and down the the elevator of classes all the time, class and classes. So this this play is uh, centers on a maybe New York, Brooklyn-ish suburban couple, and you know it's a little bit lifelike in that the husband is a teacher at a school like the one I teach at, and um, the wife works in HR, and they have a full-time babysitter whose uh, boyfriend uh, visits one time when he's not supposed to, and um, that sort of starts a chain of events. Um, that then also gets involved with a, a, a parent of one of the, the students. What uh, does he see? Husband. What does he see that he shouldn't see? Or what does he discover? What happens? Well, it's it's like what happens if we try living in this world? So he, he, uh, the boyfriend of the babysitter comes over and they're hanging out while the kids are taking a nap. You know, So it's like this idea of um, being in an unfamiliar world and, and trying it on and um, then there's a question of you know whether or not something was stolen without giving too much away, and that kind of leads to a, a chain of events that makes everybody you know like we're talking about get nervous and get strange. And the, the boyfriend is from a different sort of social class than the yeah, and we then, find out that he he you know he's been to prison for theft in the past and has gotten you know gotten through it, and now he's having a hard time getting hired anywhere, and so you know he has his own issues, and um, yeah, so it's. Hopefully, a thoughtful play about um, you know how how we interact with each other and stay human and stay sane. You know, in Norway, they're actually closing jails. Their, their crime rate is so low wow. that they just have too many jails. They don't have like. How are they doing on schools? Probably pretty good. Pretty well, yeah, right, exactly. Yeah, yeah there's a but you pay one you pay on one end or the other, right? I mean, you, you kind of right. Is it Pennsylvania that has a thing where they're spending hundreds of millions of dollars on prisons and cutting education? Or is that just everywhere? It's interesting, too. I, did, I get so cynical about, like, you know, like they're trying to, re, they're trying to you know, re-institute um, certain drug offense, like, it, you know, pursuing criminal penalties uh-huh. under this Justice Department. And it's sort of like, well, yeah— because there's a for-profit prison industry that people have money in, mm-hmm. and so many, of, so much of our prison population are nonviolent drug. Like so, it, when you actually take a different approach to to drug use, that's mm-hmm. not criminalized, then there's a group of people that stand to lose a pretty significant yeah. amount of money. Sure. Well, and then it's interesting that we kind of glorify that in popular inter- entertainment in different sort of ways, thinking of like Breaking Bad and Weeds and uh, things that, uh, what's the, why am I blanking on it? Narcos? Oh, yeah. I, my wife says that's excellent. I haven't watched it yet. Yeah. Well, it's, it's some good acting. Yeah. It's weird that it centers around um, like the whitest white guy they could find who's the narrator of this whole experience. But you do, you do good to see some Pablo Escobar uh, point of view stuff, but... Yeah. POV. Yeah. So, do you, is there is there a sense that the couple do they feel guilty about their suspicions of the guy? I mean, we're going back to my play. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Of course. And they're like careful about saying anything about being suspicious um, in any direction. And uh, I don't want to reveal too much of the plot because you know it's, it's spoiler. But uh, is there a movie deal? No. 
There, I mean, there could be, but there isn't currently. Why don't we work on that? Okay. I, mean, yeah. I would love to see you with a movie deal. Yeah, me too. I mean, I might even do something other than teaching for a little bit. but I like that. Yeah. Do you want to play another song for us? Yeah, I could try. Let me think about it. You have a very nice guitar, too. It's this gorgeous guitar. Thank you. I, I, uh, it was a birthday present to myself with, with some help a couple years ago. What is this song? This is a this is a really another really new song. I kind of challenged myself. Wanted to play some new songs today. I like that. Um, you know, they might be they're kind of a little. I don't want to say negative, but they're uh, not um, avoiding things. I think I, I wrote this one while uh, I was on the treadmill at the gym. I felt like I was going nowhere. Do you write songs like fat? Are your good songs? Are they like? Fat, do they? I mean, are they a quick process? The good ones? Or? Yeah. Like so, you just you usually, get inspiration. But there, I, there are some songs that have taken years to, and I come back to them. And I'm happy to come back to them. Like I'll have a segment of a song that I want to return to. Maybe I'll play something like that a little bit later. All right, I like that. Yeah. I used to stare between the pillars of salt, looking for the mouth of the stream. Now the mystery is gone. I used to count the days before I'd get out Tricks hidden up both my sleeves Now the mystery is gone I once looked up to the stars above Wished on a pond for some heavenly love Now the stars above are down in the pond and the mystery is gone The mystery is gone The mystery is gone The mystery is gone I searched the back roads of the earth To find out what my soul was worth It was worth dirt and the mystery is gone I searched the clouds for signs of life I sacrificed, I held the night I paid the price And the mystery is gone I drank and smoked and stared in a mirror Until my devil self reappeared I asked him what he feared And he said he feared God Now the mystery is gone The mystery is gone The mystery is gone The mystery is gone And the mystery is gone The mystery is gone That was beautiful. Thanks. So the mystery, that's interesting, the pillars of salt. Uh, what, what, what we're standing between the pillars of salt. I'm not sure, but I, there definitely were two of them. All right. Yeah. I mean, I have my own little explanations for some of those things. that Either would make no sense or make too much sense. All right. Well, what? Can, give me one of them. Mm. 
Well, I do actually remember being pretty young, like a preteen, and looking up and making wishes on things on stars or throwing uh, coins into ponds or things like that. And, and I actually remember that instead of wishing for, you know, fame and fortune and everything that goes with it like I do now, it's, I was really wishing for love. I wanted to experience like romantic love. How old were you? I, I'm, I think like teen, preteen, kind of young, very like, yeah. Wow. Yeah. So you're wishing for love and you, that's a memory that's in the song. Yeah. Expressed. Well, I think it was, it's sort of uh, not exactly a list song, but when I, I knew I wanted to write something about the mystery being gone for, for good or for bad. But when, when you have uh, something that seems like, you will never grasp or never understand, and then you maybe acquire it or understand a new um, appreciation or, or view of it. Um, so, uh, you know, I definitely feel like I've experienced love in a really, you know, great way, in a profound way, but it wasn't that uh, necessarily the same kind of love as the the wishing upon it, if that makes any sense. Is it like a tone of disenchantment? Yeah, yeah, but it's also, you know, I had a. Uh, a class. Do you tell your wife this? You're great, but like, no, I. That's not what I. No, that's not. <laughs> I'm a, just teasing. No, and you know, for the record, in case she ever listens to this, no, it's not about being disillusioned with with love with her. I mean, it's it's definitely more profound. You know, as as, as you probably know, that's, you know, with uh, my wife and kids, and you know, that's that's. But that's in a way that's no longer a mystery, and I, I get that in a deep sort of way. I think the mystery is gone. Part is like. Maybe it's a little, you know, disappointing that suddenly you know what something is, but um, it's also kind of beautiful, too. Yeah, Max Weber talks about that, like modernity, like the, the steel trap of the modern world and how, like, we live in a disenchanted reality that, I mean, it's interesting that, like, we know more about how the world works, you know, in physics and biology and just, you know, in all sorts of ways. We know, you know, about our evolutionary history, but, yeah, but, like, for Aristotle the point was that the telos of things. And so like now we know a lot more about frogs than Aristotle did, but, yeah. but, but we know, but Aristotle went, why are there frogs? Like, what is this, you know, what is, you know? Yes. So we kind of have this, we know more of the details, but we, it's like, we it, don't know why there are details. Right. Exactly. I remember going to, um, it was actually in, in Prague. I went into this, uh, kind of natural history museum where it was, you know, definitely funkier than our, our natural history museum in New York, but kind of cool. And they had all these different fish, you know, pinned up in a wall behind glass. And uh, I was just kind of blown away by the concept that there were so many different kinds of fish that look so different from each other. And, you know, why? Why, why that would be at all necessary, except for the fact that it's cool and makes life more enjoyable for us? I, yeah, I don't know. Does it make it better for the fish to have more variety? Yeah. Mm. Yeah, I don't know. Like, it, I, there's this uh, philosopher, Marilyn Adams, of blessed memory. She just died recently. But I remember her saying something. If you tried to look at the world and figure out if there was a creator, what you could find by looking at it. I would think what would be indisputable is that whatever the creator is values diversity and fragility. Because hmm. there's a lot of things, and they're all pretty fragile. Yes. But then there are more and more of them. Yeah. And, diversity, and there, there are different kinds that we haven't even documented yet. And there are what they just discovered was a 20 or 40 planets that are potentially Earth's, or at least they're rocky enough and are, they're in the right uh, heat zone to be uh, holding water maybe. But hmm. And you have that line with, with the devil fears God, the mystery's gone. What does that mean? 
Um, I don't. I don't know. It just kind of came to me, and it seemed like the right concluding line. Um, but I think it's also about. You know, I'm sure it's about me at some point. Uh, you know, I think mirrors. Are you the devil, Jim? No. <laughs> no, but I think we all, you know, recognize. I don't. I don't know if there is one particular devil, but there are the something we might identify as a devil within us if we have that in our, you know, code of processing the world. And somehow I ended up with that. You know, as you know, I'm not raised in a, a typical organized religion, so I'm kind of free floating. But I've had moments when I've, you know, particularly looking in mirrors, and I'm like, oh, oh, there's my devil self, you know, or there's something better or different. And, and it's, I, I think it's, it is fear that I see in that look, too, in those eyes. Ah, so the behind the shadow side is fear. Yeah. Yeah, I, I generally think that that's, where's that passage in First John that says perfect love drives out fear? I do think that, like, when we're loved... We feel less insecure, less narcissistic. Mm. More, yeah. we're probably a little more courageous. Yeah. When we feel lack of love, mm-hmm. we have less to give, and we're probably yeah. You, you, Thomas Merton says, you know, that there's a difference between being yourself and seeing yourself. And so, like, he's, you know, mm-hmm. when you're in that shadow side, you're often seeing, trying to see who's being projected, mm-hmm. and try to tweak it and sort of manage the impression as opposed to just sort of being yourself. Yeah. Well, that reminds me of another line from one of my songs. You want to play it? Yeah, I think I should. Let's do it. Okay. Somewhere between the scales of life and the deep emotional scars You can cut into me with your knife and you will see stars Trying to please the muse abroad and the loving muse back at home. It's not that I'm happily traveling far, but sometimes it's nice to be alone. Somewhere in between the constant push and pull. Never-ending scene Would never call it dull But it's a trying way to live Always being pulled in between Being anywhere And nowhere at all Somewhere between the Finger Lakes and the Silver City of Sin Count all the silverware past that I'll never take And the places I've been But I swear that it was no mistake to stay Just a choice I live with And every morning I wake up and face my fate Never know who or where I've been Somewhere in between The constant push and pull Never-ending scene Would never call it dull But it's a trying way to live It's a trying way to live Always being pulled in between Being anywhere and nowhere at all
And I lay atop the hotel bed And I'm wondering aloud When I look back now on all of it Can I say that I'm proud And tonight I am going back home And she will sleep by my side Funny though when you are not alone There is no place for yourself You can hide nowhere in between The constant push and pull Never ending scene Would never call it dull It's a trying way to live it's a trying way to live It's a trying way to live Always being pulled in between Being anywhere and nowhere at all So you have, your father is Jewish Mm-hmm. Your mother was, was she Roman Catholic? Uh, no, just kind of Christian. Just kind of Christian, generically. <laughs> we never figured she, out what kind. Not that Christian. Uh, uh, Bucks no. County Christian. So Bucks we, County. We, we, you know, oh, she's from Bucks County, right? Yeah. Yeah. Where? You know what town? We're in Bucks so, County right now. Yeah, that's kind of weird, but yeah. Uh, I'm in the Allentown, maybe. Is it? Well, that's actually Montgomery. County. Never mind. It's uh, something like. Maybe she went to Allentown per- for uh, ballet lessons. Perkusians, that sounds very Yeah, that's like the furthest up north of Bucks County. Like, wow. that's much further. And it's like probably 40 minutes from here, north up at Delaware. I, sh- I should know. We didn't do a lot of going back to visit. So that's like one way you're torn between places or world. I mean, you kind of, you know, are there other ways you feel you felt like a person? Living between worlds? Sure. I mean, every day job I've ever had, uh, which has, you know, gone from meaningless to meaningful now. I used to have very meaningless day jobs where I'd process data or... What was the most meaningless? Uh, I think the first temp job I had where I was sorting microfiche at a title company in Sacramento. But then again, I I got to work in the basement with this Vietnam vet. It was really cool. That was kind of interesting. What, did he have a lot of stories? He did. I mean, I can't remember any of them, but... <laughs> they were there. I remember his... You know, I remember what he smelled like, because he's one of those guys who smoked so long that he has a kind of just this pleasant tobacco odor about him. And I would go out and, and kind of like... I didn't smoke, but I would watch him smoke at, at breaks and, you know, talk about things. And then we'd go file microfiche together. Uh, I, I had a job... Uh, I wouldn't say it was meaningless, but it was rough going around uh, sort of a logging community in Northern California for the Sierra Club. And that was a lot of doors being slammed in my face. And, yeah, that was weird. So what, what were you doing? You were, you were soliciting for the Sierra Club? Yeah. There was a – I think we are trying to get them to sign something, like a petition. This is when I was in college. Um, Against logging or cutting yeah, trees? Yeah, I think so. And, you know, sell subscriptions to the Sierra Club. <laughs> it was, it was rough. They would drop us off in a van and we would spread out and – at the end of the day, they'd pick us up and come back and have bagels. Is that like if you wanted to go like door to door for the NRA in Williamsburg? In yeah, that Brooklyn? would be similar. Yeah, or Park Slope would be a great place to go yeah, door to door for the NRA. For the NRA. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Do you feel like that is increasing in modern life where people feel? I mean, you know, 
in pre-modern life, right, most people, unless you're like Marco Polo or something, you're really adventuresome, but like most people kind of live and die with the same people, you know, and everybody knows you. Sure. People know your story before you, you know it. Now, I mean, you grew up, I mean, your mom's from Bucks County. Where's your dad from? He's from L.A. And, then, and you grew up in California, right? Yeah, I grew up in, well, mainly in Sacramento since I was four. But yeah, I was, you and know. And now you're an East Coaster. And, sure, and people used to pass on a house through generations, too. Yeah, and now people don't. Yeah. Even if you own something now, a lot of our friends are, you know, owning things. Uh, but it's not with the intention of keeping it in the family necessarily. Yeah. My wife and I love this house. Yeah. Love it. It's, it's we, a nice house. We don't think that we'll, I mean, you know, I don't know. It, it, this is so like, I don't know. I feel like a vulture, but there's this, our dream house is around the corner. Yeah. And we're thinking. But that's how everybody it, thinks, right? You're supposed to have like a starter home yeah. that you own, and this is—I mean, it's a mystery to us because we, we don't own a home. But uh, the guy that maintains the garden, though, my wife said he looks like he's in pretty good shape. It'll be—that's good though, because it'll take us a while to save good the money to purchase it. Right, and if you know, if you want to speed things up, you just take him down to the basement. Exactly, right here. Do a show with them, and yeah, exactly. Yeah. Just come for an interview and. Uh, why don't you just, let's just play a joke called um, "Sign the Deed to Your House." <laughs> Is that that sounds like a Trump reality show? Exactly. <laughs> like Big Brother. Yeah. So you've so you've kind of lived between worlds, and yeah, I mean, it, I think isn't it probably feels increasingly like that for lots of us that people feel good. Like you, yeah. you go to work with one group of people. You, you, if if you're religious or something, you worship with another group of people. You yeah. recreate with another group of people. Your family tend to be another mm-hmm. group of people. If you're single, you're often dating another group of people. You know, so that's yeah. it's weird when you look at like social media stuff, your Facebook or something. It's like, oh, well, these are the people that know, quote unquote, know me. How many of them know each other, and how many of them would have a shared story of yeah. who you or I am? Right. Didn't I try to connect you with some guy who's a, a reverend in Texas or something? And just purely based on the fact that you had something religious in common. Yeah, maybe I think maybe. Yeah, I don't know. Yeah, that's it, right? But there's I mean, no particular reason why you'd know each other. It's like, yeah. You know, right. I mean, that's, that's, almost offensive. that's the nature of... Yeah. Uh, yeah, well, I think, you know, New York, going back to New York, too, is a place where it's a little more accepted and understood that you might be doing something during the day that doesn't actually reflect who you are in totality. I think other places, you know, at least in, in the country that I know of, L.A. Um, right, New York and L.A. New York and L.A. Sure, um, may, you know, maybe maybe some of the other like theatery towns like D.C. or something. But even then, you know, a lot of people are just totally confused by the idea that you would be doing something seriously outside of your your working day. You know, you might have hobbies, but it's really hard to process that you, your identity might truly be somewhere else, or you know, even a vocation you think for yourself is somewhere else. But, uh, you know, that's one, one of the reasons why teaching has become, like I said, more, more meaningful because it's – I'm definitely surrounded by career teachers. Um, but they, they seem to understand also that I, I have uh, my playwriting life and songwriting life outside and, and sometimes even as a part of the teaching I get to do. I get to teach playwriting to students and, you know, sometimes the worlds cross. So, yeah, in, in a lot of ways, I'm in a good place with what I'm doing during my days. Uh, and it's just then I'm torn between uh, time and time, finding time to do everything that I would like to do, and you know, be you know a good father too. You know, that's a big part of my life. So it's, but it's it is that that push and pull that also makes me who I am, and um, you know, gives me incentive to keep pushing and pulling in various directions. I don't, I don't know what it's like to uh, 
you know, say, for instance, have a trust fund and be able to fund whatever I wanted to do. And uh, not that there's anything wrong with that. And a lot of people who do great things with that. But there's also a sense that, you know, uh, to not be financially struggling, to just do whatever I wanted to do would would be a totally different experience of life. And I don't know. I don't know what I would make. What of that. would you fund if you did? Would you fund this podcast? I would. I would at least donate. I like that. Donate. I like that. I don't know what, what I would find. Um, you know, I'd make a lot of music, make a lot of albums. I would produce plays, you know, maybe altruistically thinking not just by myself, but, you know, the truth is a lot of plays that I've written just because they have a lot of plays that haven't been produced. Um, what would I do? I'd probably travel if I'm more traveling. What, what got you into playwriting? Uh, I, I liked making dialogue from when I was a little kid. Um, my, my cars would talk to each other and they would have, you know, full stories that I would act out. And then, you know, as young as sixth grade and then eighth grade, I had little skit projects that turned into more serious projects that I felt drawn to, to. and I I knew I wanted to be some kind of writer. So then I hit high school and and saw a sign for a contest that was a playwriting contest in California, and uh, I wrote a play for that, and they actually picked it and, and produced it. So then I had the experience of being a produced young playwright, and then I kept doing that with, uh, with other young playwright contests and productions and then just kind of really discovered that's how I was most comfortable with expressing myself as a writer. And then I fell into songwriting, um, which, uh, you know, I, people speaking of being torn between two things have often asked me, you know, what's more important to you? Like what's, what, what's your real writing thing? Is it songwriting or playwriting? And, you know, I think that they are both um, forms of writing that are meant to be heard. And so to me, they're really the same. Um, and sometimes they'll bail each other out when they're not going so well. Like if I'm having a tough time as a playwright, I'm able to, you know, work with, with a band for a little while and, and uh, feel creatively satisfied that way. And, you know, so it's... It's interesting because a lot of pre-modern writing was meant to be... Like, I remember, I, remember, I think yeah. it was St. Anselm or something. They were watching him studying, like the, I, like the 11th century or something, and the monks were like, commenting how weird he was because he read with his eyes. And so, like, you know, because so much of stuff was even written things like the Bible or something, they imagined they'd be read, they were being read all the time. Sure. And so these are things that, you know, are meant to be read. And so, and so now there's so much that we consume, that, you know, whether it's in The Economist or a novel or whatever. We don't, mm. we, we don't, I mean, people don't write those things with the imagining anyone will ever read them aloud to anybody. Yeah, probably not. That's a good point. Although, you know, podcasts. Are very popular um, scripted um, podcasts. Um, I had a play that was uh, I think we talked about last time that was on a podcast meant to be heard. But then you know what you're talking about also reminded me of Homer and and going back you know that there is this tradition of telling stories um, that I mean we don't know all the all the the truths about Homer, but the sense that a bard has a memorized tale that um, he tells over and over again, probably accompanied to music. And, you know, maybe answering requests from the audience, like tell the story about the Trojan horse again. Yeah. That's it's interesting, too, because Homer, you know, there's this book that came out a couple of years ago called All Things Shining. It's a great book hmm. by two Heidegger scholars, actually. But it's a kind of more popular level book about reading the classics in a secular age, I think it's called. And mm-hmm. basically they're saying how what's interesting is that if you go through Western history, whether it's Homer or Dante or something, you know, you have these people, you have these kind of narratives, these epic narratives that sort of tell people what it means to be a man, to be a woman, to love, mm-hmm. to, to lose, to hope, 
and you don't have to make up all the questions, all the answers, you know, or, or think of all the questions yourself. Hmm. The, the culture kind of spins around these sort of these narr- this narrative traditions that tell you that now we're sort of like what I guess our cultural story is you shouldn't have any narrative except one that in adulthood you choose from the position of autonomy, which gets confusing hmm. because there's a lot of narratives. <laughs> yeah, well, and I don't know that that's, I don't know if there's one narrative that you're expected to choose early on. It seems like there is more room to do some switching and kind of, you know, it's expected now, right, that you'll have a couple careers in the course of your life and they might have to do with each other or they might not. You know, I work with a teacher who used to be in banking and he's a very popular uh, history teacher, you know, and that's... And that your values might really shift. I mean, that you're kind of, that you're, I mean, I think that it's like all things, our virtues or our vices, right? I mean, part of the virtue of late modern Western life is you do have a lot of choices. You know, I mean, I think that that's comparatively in world history and even today in, in modern life around a lot of the world, people just don't have a lot of choices, you know, and whereas as Western late modern people live in a capitalist consumer side, we have a ton of choices, but also I think it doesn't always equate, right. That more choices make you feel more free. (laughs) Yeah. Well, and then going back to Dante, like he's midway in his life's journey when he comes upon the dark wood and the, uh, what is it? It's, it's not a tiger. It's a panther or something that leads into Virgil that, you know, but he's, ha- he's having a midlife crisis. Yeah. And then, it's, yeah, he gets lost in the woods. Yeah. And where does he ultimately end up with this uh, this old love of his life we never talked to, who's actually a young teenager who ends up taking him to heaven? Beatrice. Yeah. 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 So can I request a song? Please. It's the it's wedding song, the lion song. Oh, I didn't play that last time? You did, but I want to play it again. I want to hear it again. Okay. I love that song. I want to dedicate this to my lovely li- wife, Lindy Jones. Sure. I love this song. I will fight the hungry lions Till my duty calls to rise I will try to keep on trying through a silver lining tie I will wear a darker shade of red or blue I will do just what I'm made on earth to do As long as I can do it No, I'll get on through it As long as I can do it with I will wander greener pastures I will tend forgotten weeds I will squander your disasters I will ponder last year's seeds I will wear the foot that fits the other shoe I will do just what I'm made on earth to do as long as I can do it, no, I'll get on through it. As long as I can do it with you, I'm gonna go into the mountain, take a test of fire and flood. I will hold my fingers counting all the days of flesh and blood. Shudder just to think that it's all true I will do just what I'm made on earth to do 
long as I can do it, no, I'll get on through it, long as I can do it with you. I will ride the train or carriage, I will ride the rusty rail. I will ride down to the Merrill's, I will raise a wedding veil. And if I fail, at least I tried my best for you. I will do just what I'm made on earth to do. Long as I can do it, no, I'll get on through it. Long as I can do it with you. That's beautiful. You've done that at several weddings, right? I have, yeah. The first time I played it publicly was for uh, a wedding in Nashville uh, with my friends uh, Will and Jenny, who got married. And um, it was actually an early early date for my wife and I going to this wedding. Uh, so that was kind of a, a nice experience to have. I played it for them with a fiddle player who was really excellent. Um, and uh, you know, I was looking at them while I was singing it, and it felt really good. Um, and then I yeah, ended up playing it at a few different weddings in different ways, sometimes uh, like part of the ceremony or, you know, at some event at somebody's house or something. But it, it's definitely a, a wedding song. And then it was part of my wedding, too. The uh, the Randy Bandits walked down with me kind of uh, playing and, and singing that song. This is Which is the band that you founded? Yeah, yeah. Which Do you guys still play together? Well, some of us do in different combinations. Uh, you know, I still don't know what to call us when we play or what to call any band that I play with. Uh, so it's usually, you know, Jim Nabel and the something. And the um, former Randy Bandits? Yeah, the, I was. I thought of like the remains of the Bandits, the random Bandits, the uh, the Rancid Bandits. You know, it's really kind of... Rancid's kind of... That, maybe not Rancid, but... You no, it's like a punk We were metal. thinking it, when the Randy Bandits were really going strong, we thought about having a children's band called the Candy Bandits. <laughs> I don't know. We probably would have played all the same songs we played as the Randy Bandits and just worn funny costumes. I think over one of the holidays, I messaged you on Facebook and you said that your father-in-law was reading oh. Eric Metaxas's right. Dietrich Bonhoeffer biography. Right. And I, I, there's this quote that Bonhoeffer wrote while he was imprisoned because he was part of the conspiracy against Hitler. And um, he says, every wedding must be an occasion of joy. The human beings can do such great things that they have been given such immense freedom and power to take the helm in their life's journey. That's very nice. Somebody should read that for a wedding. Yeah, it's nice. Yeah. It's, I love Bonhoeffer. He's a, he was a, he's one of those guys that was like ahead of his time. And yeah. he was, I mean, he actually went back to Germany during the war. I mean, he basically, he was here in New York State Union Seminary or something. And everybody tried to come in. He's like, you're brilliant. Don't go back there. He's yeah. like, if I don't go back, when they rebuild, I'll have no credibility. Like I, you know, like I have to go back and mm. I can't abandon. I mean, yeah. he was very consciously against the Third Reich, but also he didn't, he felt like he couldn't just stay here while his country was sort of yeah. taken over. And so, yeah. But kind of, you know, so wayward. Yeah. I've been really interested lately in a, a story of uh, Helene Mayer. Or is it Meyer? 
I, I've never actually heard it said. I've just read it. Who is a, a half Jewish fencer who fenced for Hitler in the 1936 Olympics and famously uh, won the silver medal and got on the stand and did the Heil Hitler salute while she was there. So she's sort of immortalized as this uh, Jewish woman who – and she actually, similar to the story you're telling, went back to Germany to do that after she had been basically kicked out of the, the major fencing organization in Germany. So she ended up in California teaching at Mills College, teaching German at Mills College. Uh, and the 1936 Olympics were rolling around in Berlin and uh, the U.S. was thinking of boycotting um, the you know, really strong movement against it, against Hitler, against what people were afraid of him doing. So he, he tried to round up a few uh, Jewish athletes to, to prove that everything was all right again. It's all right. It is not all right. It was not all right. Um, but she went back um, and competed in Berlin and actually lost to another Jew- Jewish woman, who I think was Hungarian. Um, but, you know, there she was on the stand, silver medal in hand, saluting Hitler. Um, so it's, yeah, it's a powerful, powerful stories from that time of people, particularly German people who seem to know right from wrong or maybe be a little confused about what counted most for them, but ended up going back to this country that was in such uh, questionable straits. Yeah, yeah. And I think for me, the moving thing about Bonhoeffer is the, the sort of solidarity and sort of, again, working subversively in the Pope project, the assassination project. It's also funny, too, because he wrote a book called, um, well, the German title was called Nachfolger, which is following after. Mm-hmm. But the English title, which most people in the English-speaking world know, is called The Cost of Discipleship. And it's this mm-hmm. kind of radical, somewhat radical, at least, approach to the Christian vision of life. And he, he, he's, spa- I mean, he, most people, when they read it, think he's basically a pacifist. I mean, he doesn't mm-hmm. think anybody that takes the teachings of Jesus seriously can in any way be involved in violence and coercion. And yet he winds up <laughs> in this plot to assassinate the Fuhrer. Mm-hmm. So it's just, it, it's just interesting how our values, I, I, we, we think we know what we believe or something until we're put in different situations that mm-hmm. sometimes those things are challenged or challenging. Yeah. Well, and, and that in a sense, I don't want to say he's fortunate, but he has the, he had the opportunity in his life to be truly tested, uh, in a way that made him have to make decisions based on his own morality and have a sense of his morality. And maybe some of us have that to a certain degree or another. Um, but a lot of us are very privileged in the sense that we, we have the luxury of getting to test ourselves or throw ourselves momentarily into a test, but we're not necessarily called to be tested in the same way, at yeah. least at least so far. Um, you know, certainly there are people who uh, don't have that luxury or privilege. Yeah, yeah, that's true. I mean, I think yeah. Like, so, what do you what are you writing these days, play wise? Uh, well, I was working on a play on the train down here. It's uh, right now. It's called The Refugee. Um, and it, going back to weddings, it imagines a uh, kind of a bachelor night, um, which seems like a typical kind of bachelor night with, with three guys out at a pool hall um, that takes place shortly after the secession of the middle states. Uh, so it's playing with this idea that there's a, a, a new reality and it's, you know, it's, it's kind of dystopian except for the fact that I wanted to play with like the normalcy of dystopia. And what if, you know, speaking of being tested, what if we had reached a point where people no longer felt tested, but something had already happened, a split had happened within the country. And if you were on the the side where you felt comfortable, then you could just keep on living a comfortable life. Um, 
but you know, in this play, uh, a, a refugee from the middle states does appear to these guys and um, gets, approaches the groom privately and, and lets him know that she has heard about him as being somebody who used to help people. So he's, he's uh, perhaps tested. Um, so then the, the play goes on, and it's kind of it's serious and funny at the same time. Turns a tone. Um, I'm trying to figure that out. And right now, it's kind of it's a short full-length play, and I'm trying to figure out if it, it should be longer and uh, what exactly I'm trying to say with it or if it's just a ride that's meant to be gone on. But, I, you know, for me, I think it's processing a lot of feelings that we're talking about having that we sense that everything is not all right, but what actually are we doing about it if we absolutely don't feel like we have to do something about it and where could that lead next? Yeah. Do you, it's interesting because... There's a difference right, between dystopian stories and, and post-apocalyptic stories. Right. There's one is usually a kind of cataclysmic event that with zombies or right. weather or something. It's about survival. Right. And yeah. also it's, it's usually forced on you. And dystopian stuff usually, right, the victims of the dystopic rally often play a part in mm. the disintegration of what was previously a, a better shared common life. Yeah. Sure. Yeah, I happened to read The Handmaid's Tale just before everybody started talking about The Handmaid's Tale. Um, And all I could think about while I was reading it was, you know, either this is prescient or this reverberates with all these themes that are true fears right now. Um, And now everybody's looking at that that show on – it's on Hulu, right? Yeah, it was, I, I, I just finished it. It. It, was, it. it was outstanding. Yeah, now I, I'm sure it would make a great TV show. It's, uh, it feels episodic and the universe could keep expanding. Um, and, and it feels you know really relevant to this creepy feeling that we all have. In the book, I don't know how they, if they show this in the movie, but you kind of assume that the whole world is like this. And then there are these, uh, I think they're Japanese tourists. Oh yeah, no, yeah, and the, with cameras and they're sort of you know, well, yeah, in the show, typical, but yeah, yeah, in the show, there's like actually there's a Mexican trade uh-huh. delegation, oh. and you can tell they're conflicted about this handmaids thing, and they're kind of interrogating the handmaids, and of course the handmaids are saying, oh, it's great, we do this for, yeah. but then they're so the handmaids are so disturbed because they realize that they're actually there looking for to learn to export import handmaids because right. of the because they haven't had children born in Mexico in years. Right. And just the you know the fertility issues that are yeah going on. And then in Canada in the show actually, you know, people are f- find refuge because Ace Gilead is in in the far northeast in the United States, uh-huh. in New England. And so some people make it out to Canada. Right. Which there's actually US officials in Canada like well, you know, it, it's really it's really interesting, like for, you know, from the former government. Yeah, it's really fascinating. No, I mean, there would be a lot of questions you'd have to try to answer, and in, in making that into a TV show that you kind of get away with avoiding, that that Atwood gets away with avoiding in the book, um, especially because she jumps forward in time at the end of the book. So it's it's all kind of a historical document that's being presented. Yeah, I actually I haven't read the book, but I read about it yeah. during the hands and yeah, how they and you sense that you now there's a new liberal society that's not the United yeah. States, but it's back to liberal society and they're trying to figure out right. how this, you know, it's so interesting too. Like you look at the handmaid's tale and it's so, and, and again, I think people are probably worried. Oh, are we there? Like, at least a group of people in this country. Are we going towards a less liberal, more traditional patriarchal kind of theocratic thing? But the interesting thing about that is mm. Donald Trump is the least religious, most secular president in my lifetime. Mm-hmm. Somebody with just no religious imagination, 
Right. No sort of, he's just not. But I, And I think that's probably true of a lot of people within his inner circle, you know, but they're very interested in finding the people that can be led to do whatever they want them to do. And those people often fall into that category of uh, unshakable um, belief that doesn't uh, have any patience with intellectual thought. Yeah, I also think there's a lot of people that identify as Christian in a survey kind of way, but they're not part of any kind of spiritual communities. And it, it's become a nationality. Like we're not Jews, we're not Muslims, mm. we're not this, we're not, you know, and we're for traditional values. And so mm. there's a sense in which they're they're not Christians in any sense of the traditional right. ways, but, but, but it almost becomes a means of identification over and against this. Do you know the term happy clappy Christians? Is that something? I do. I've heard okay. that. I've heard that. I wasn't exposed to that until, you know, my wife's family was very Catholic and they referred to certain Christians as being happy clappy. I knew a guy at the time at Liberty and he said, there are two kinds of ways churches are going these days. And my nigga was sort of symbolic and liturgical and embracing mystery. Mm-hmm. And the other is happy clappy. And he goes, and my church, unfortunately, is chosen happy clappy. <laughs> right. That was the first time I ever heard that term. Yeah. I mean, it can mean a lot of things. I mean, being happy and clapping is, sounds sounds great, but it means it's something else, though. It's a, it implies, like, superficiality, right? Yeah, I think that, uh, well, it's interesting, too. Donald Trump, at least the nominal kind of formation he got, I think, was at Norman Vincent Peale's church, Marble Collegiate, in New York. And that church, Norman Vincent Peale, Peale wrote a, a very popular book called The Power of Positive Thinking. Oh, right. And Joel Olstein has kind of taken that over. And it is a very kind of... Uh, health and wealth sort of power of positive, you know, basically if you believe hard enough in your, you know, if if you have enough faith, things are just going to go your way. Yeah. Which I wonder how that is at the cancer bedside, but. Well, I was going to go there. But yeah, like, yeah. It just doesn't seem to be, but it, but it is very American. I mean, it it is. It is interesting because. Optimism. Is, yeah, yeah. This kind of, this kind of optimism and, you know, it's interesting, like. With the social stratification that exists in this country right now, the income inequality and stuff, in most countries they'd be revolutionary. But people drive by McMansions and they don't say, "Ah, oh, gosh, we're, why?" Is They're like, "I'm going to get that someday." It's sort of like, yeah. you know, we have this kind of, or even like, "I, I deserve that. Why don't I get that?" You know, this sense of yeah, it's toppling. It, it's interesting though. It seems that we're resistant to. I, I, I think that the the kind of American dream stuff actually somehow is an opiate to the inequality effects, which are, I mean, the income inequality mm-hmm. right now is so, it just gets worse and worse and worse. And I don't think it's been this bad since before the depression. And that's what happens, right? Because you, you once mm. you bottleneck all that money at the top, you can only spend so much money, like, right? Like you can only consume so much. And so that's why when you give a bunch of tax cuts to people at, at the upper echelon, it doesn't really go back into the economy. It just gets, no, it like goes into recycled. Mutual, yeah. Yeah. So Jeff songs about mutual funds, hedge funds. Oh man. Hedge funds. That's inspiring. Songs about hedge funds. Hedge funds. <laughs> trying to think if I have any money songs. I think I, I probably need to write some. Yeah, man. You're in New York. I would think that's uh, the topic or a topic. Well, I mean, I, I do have a song. I used to play with my band a lot called Real Names, which, which imagined me as sort of an entitled, um, woman working for, uh, you know, the kind of job I used to have at a, at a temping place where I didn't really have to work. Um, that sounds like a good gig. You didn't really have to work. Yeah. It's kind of a weird song, but I, I mean, I could try to remember it and play it. 
You can play something else. You don't, you don't, dude, people died in 1776. They're buried right on the corner. So you don't have to play anything you don't want to play. But the great thing is all this can be erased. That's true. So I'll, I'll try to play it. If it's disastrous, then we can just, we just erase it. it. Okay. Like, all right. Good time. I like it. Okay. Okay. We have as much time. Yeah, we got time. Well, it's not like they have real names. They come up to meet me just the same. I'm given the fights of fancy and impersonated fame. With myself never open to blame. Well, when the plumber comes by for the pipes, I let him poke around as much as he likes. And if he thinks he can stop the flood with just his thumb and the dike, then I don't try to put up a fight. Cause there's no glory in the might have done excuse And there's no shortage of bad advice But my daddy always told me that someday I'd have to lose And my daddy always told me I was born with golden shoes And my daddy always told me that it wasn't an excuse And I said, Daddy, isn't that nice? Now I'm next to the conference room Occasional laughter and clapping resume There's a man talking backwards I can't understand or consume The rest is as silent as a tomb With my past I'm not quite secure I wasn't that crazy but I wasn't that pure They all think I'm lazy but I know I'm just demure At least of one thing I am sure there's no glory in the might have done excuse. There's no shortage of bad advice. My daddy always told me that someday I'd have to lose. And my daddy always told me I was born with golden shoes. And my daddy always told me that it wasn't an excuse. And I said, Daddy, isn't that nice? want to go to work today I'll just stay home get wasted and waste away lie on the couch and pretend I'm insane it's easier than dealing with the pain well it's not like they have real names they come up to meet me just the same But my daddy always told me that I was the one to blame And my daddy always told me that I should be ashamed And my daddy always told me now I take in his name And now I'm afraid I'm the same Totally no need to erase that. It was awesome. That was kind of fun to do just by myself. I don't think I've ever really done that. I like it. See, it's, it's you got a picture of the piano, and there's usually a solo thing that happens. But that was great. Yeah, dude, we met. You have done some work with the Unorthodox podcast. You went to school with Mark Oppenheimer. True. At Yale. Mm-hmm. Yale. It's very impressive. It sounds good. Yeah, I mean, it's it's good on your resume, right? It does. It does help. Yeah. Do you go to like the Yale Club or anything like that? Yeah, I've been to the Yale Club. Sure. Is it cool? Yeah, it's fun. I mean, you know, you have to do the secret handshake when you walk in. And do you get a little more blue in your blood, like when you go there? Like, hum, hum, hum. Uh, you you come out looking a little more blue than you came in, but yeah, it's, it's you know that's true of a lot of swimming pools too. <laughs> 
Yeah, this is this is true. So you write, wrote a song I think called the My Little White Book. Oh yeah. Do you mind saying that? That one again? I love that song. Okay, we're doing uh, all songs in the key of C today. Maybe I, oh, I'll keep it in the key. Of the C. gentleman C, like yeah. I could put it in D. Let's see what happens if I put it in D. Last time I did it in C, so we'll mix it up a little bit. I like it. story of a people whose time had come that wandered the earth just to say where they were coming from they were chosen long ago to be persecuted to be ill reputed and to be excluded then the sea opened up and they walked right through it with the freedom Myself say I don't need them, but they're coming my way, and I see them, and I don't know what to say. They ask if I'm one of them. Well, I turned on my TV just the other day. I got in my car and heard the radio say. There's something about how they all control the media And I was thinking about my old ancestors Got a couple of Chaims and several Sylvesters A McIntyre Sloan and they're all on the boat to freedom Freedom from the mark on the door Freedom from the blood on the floor Freedom Man, if you don't know what for, you're the only one I don't need them I heard myself say I don't need them But they're coming my way and I see them And I don't know what to say They ask if I'm one of them I had a little white book when I was young Told the story of a people whose time had come That wandered the earth just to say when they were coming from Where they roamed and they roamed and they never looked back They were on their own, they were under attack And when I think of myself like that I think that I need them And I need them for the blood on the door If you ask me what for it, so I can say that I'm one of it. How did that song come about? What was the, how did you, like, what was the inspiration? Uh, I was having a little white book, which was the little Torah when I was young. It came from one of my Jewish relatives. And I did, you know, I looked into it and read some, some Genesis and some Exodus and flipped around the other stuff. Um, so that was that was my, uh, I don't know about first exposure, but first um, literary exposure maybe that I really kind of pay attention to. 
and it was, you know, about palm-sized little white book. So when I was working on the songs as, as the, uh, the appointed jubidor of unorthodox, um, that, that kind of came back to me and I knew I wanted to write something about that experience and my relationship with not only the little white book, but, you know, people on the street, um, the Hasidic Jews who ask if you're Jewish and, uh, the conflict that I, I would feel with, I can't really say that I'm Jewish because they wouldn't actually recognize that because my mother isn't Jewish. And I've talked to them about that before too. Um, so to me, the, this song is about my relationship with the Jews hmm. and in a way that's hopefully reflective of, of who I am. And it has, I think, some humor to it, you know, acknowledging the sort of stereotypical idea about media and even pretending that I have a car, which is not really true. I've never owned a car. <laughs> You've never owned a car. No, I've never owned a car. That's amazing. Yeah. I was I was kind of weird growing up in California without a car. I just got, got a ride with a lot of friends. Got Well, I got rides with lots of friends. Not just one ride, but... Do you have a driver's license? Yeah. No, and, and I do drive when I... Especially if I'm in L.A. Like, I was in L.A. for most of last summer. And I'm a pretty good driver, you know, relatively. I could see that. Yeah. <laughs> I'm not like... I'm not a driver who can do a lot of fancy maneuvering. And, you know, I, I usually avoid speeding. If you were going to buy a car, what would it be? That's really hard. Well, obviously not a sports car because you don't want to speed. Well, I, but I actually like driving kind of speedy cars. I mean, I don't know if it counts, but I got to drive a Mini Cooper. Those are great. I love you know, those which I, I'm kind of tall, so I don't really fit into it well. But it, it was nice to be low to the road and speed around a little bit. Uh, one time I got to drive a BMW, and that felt really good too. But I don't know that I'd want to own a BMW. I'd probably just end up with a Honda because that's what my parents always had was a Honda. And they, they last forever. They do. Yeah. Japanese engineering. Yeah. Do you find as an artist, because, you know, going, circling back to the things aren't all right. So like, do you, do you feel like there's a temptation because there's so much cultural upheaval right now? A lot of people feel pretty anxious and think, and think that things are off kilter. Is there like, I mean, it can be inspiration for an artist, but can it also ruin an artist and that you, you, like people can become moralists in the worst sense and I mean, because that's what we don't like about certain kinds of of films or plays or stories, right? When their morality plays in the worst sense, they're just shouting a mm-hmm. message at us. You mean being didactic? Yeah, right. Well, you know, it goes back to what we were talking about before. I got about it being called uh, or tested or to having actually having something to fight against. And there's going to be stuff that, that lasts from those responses, and there's going to be stuff that is of the moment, and that's pretty much where it will stay, and it'll be an interesting historical document later maybe, but... It won't be around forever. Um, you know, thinking about Thornton Wilder, speaking of Thornton Wilder, his play uh, Skin of Our Teeth has a lot to do with World War II. And he, uh, you know, wrote it in the middle of World War II. So it was really imagining all kinds of results from that. Um, but it was something where, you know, obviously he was called to write it at a time of great upheaval. But it's a play that re- reverberates because thematically it, it touches on things that will keep coming back and being meaningful to people. So I think it's... It is that of like if if the play that you write or whatever you write is only about the particular time that you're in in a way that's just preaching about it, but not really um, trying to connect it to anything that's come before or that might come after, then yeah, it's probably going to be pretty shallow and won't last. But you know, the times of our greatest struggle have have produced some of our greatest art that ends up lasting because it ends up being about something that is more eternal and lasting, and uh, you know, for better or worse, keeps coming back. Did, did you see Wonder Woman? I did. Yeah. And I have, you know. And you took your 
son to it on I Father's did. Day. I did on Father's Day. But that's – I actually keep going back to thinking about Wonder Woman, a lot of uh, the philosophy behind what it's been saying. And I'm not a big comics book guy, so I don't – maybe that's all there too. But the the concepts of um, there being a force behind war that gives people the tools and the desire to fight, but it's really up to the people who cause this upheaval themselves. Um, yeah. But yeah, there's a lot. There's a lot going on in that movie, and you know, I don't, I don't always agree with every single way that it's executed. And some of the the screenplay is a little bit clunky. But um, thinking about mythology and thinking about larger themes, and you know, definitely thinking about the, the power of women, I think is really uh, it's meaningful to a lot of people, you know, including myself. And hopefully, it, it's it starts a dialogue that continues with other films and you know other things that. Yeah, I thought it was women. great. I, I really, yeah. I, I yeah, I agree. I thought it was I thought it was wonderful. Yeah. Yeah. So where y- your wife works for the Thornton Wilder? Yeah. Sorry. Where is that? Is that is it like, our, our living room? Oh wow. No. Really? Where yeah. is it? It's it's sort of a state of mind. Uh, is there like a Thornton Wilder like center? Um, no, there's a a lot of his stuff is at the Yale Beinecke Library. A lot's kind of uh, I think there's some in Oberlin. There's not like one central location. Um, his uh, nephew Tappan Wilder is. Uh, the, really, the executor of the state, and you know, is the direct connection to Thornton. He was a beloved uncle of his. They were, you know, they were close, and he was a great uncle. Um, so I've, I'm, I'm honored to get to know Tappan or Tappy, as we call him. Um, and he's very charismatic, um, fun guy, and it's in his seventies. Um, My buddy Bill and I want to have him on our podcast, New Persuasive. Oh yeah, well, I think I, I even is he in New York? Is he in New York? Sometimes he's he's mainly he lives in Sausalito now. All right. Yeah, Sausalito, California. Okay, I've never. Been it's to uh, it's like uh, kind of the hilly, uh, fairly wealthy part near uh, San Francisco. It's part. It's really part of San Francisco. Well, when he comes to New York, I would, I'd like to meet that guy. We can have a podcast. We could play a little music. Yeah, well, I think we should definitely figure something out, especially because you know your the new persuasive words is Thornton Wilder. So indebted to that. Centric. I, I think you'd enjoy talking about the. His academic and religious and other kinds of writing, philosophical writing, beyond just the plays, too. So, awesome, Jim. Will you come back and do this again? Always. Yeah. Play some more music. I could. I could live here. That's yeah, great. I, I, yeah. Well, you're going to have to. Yeah. Kid, once you're kidnapped and chloroformed. And... Right. <laughs> Jim, right. thanks so much. Well, thanks for having me again. It's been a pleasure. Thanks for listening to Give and Take. If you liked what you heard, please do a couple things for me. They are so helpful if you do them. Share this interview on social media or via email or tag someone in a tweet or something and say, hey, this is great. Check it out. Spread the love and goodness if you found it here. Also, if you could go, please, 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 it takes like 60 seconds. Go to iTunes and write a review and give a, give a rating to the podcast. It really, really helps, especially as things are getting off the ground. To find out more about Jim Nabel's work, go to jimnabel.com, spelled with a K, J-I-M-K-N-A-B-L-E.com. You can find out about his plays, his stories, his other writing, and check out where he's playing and other things he's up to. Thanks again for listening, and until next time, fare thee well.